Please turn with me now in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with him to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, But they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we see both sides of your word. We see on the one hand that weak and sinful men find it difficult to receive it. Yet on the other hand, we see that your word always prevails, and there is never an instance in all of human history, neither shall there ever be a case in which it does not accomplish precisely that which you have intended for it. And so, Heavenly Father, as we take it in our hands this evening, how we pray that we would do so with full confidence that it is uh, of the Lord, that it shall accomplish great things, and, Heavenly Father, that we should put our faith in it. We pray, Lord, that you would open both our minds and our hearts to receive of our good God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Last time we were in Exodus chapter 5, and if you recall, the, the title was Pharaoh's Obstinacy. And the points were these. He does not recognize the Lord. He demands incessant service. He is a hateful tyrant, and he slanders all that is good. He's an awful tyrant, and all these things have awful implications for the poor people who have been enslaved by him, in this case, the people of Israel, the children of Israel. But thankfully, that's not the end of Exodus. No doubt, in their many years of waiting, they wondered whether this was the end, whether this was the last word, but it certainly was not and could not have been, because that certainly wasn't even the end of the book. We're just at the beginning 
And tonight we turn the page and we come to Exodus chapter 6, and it's a different story, a very different story. And the story it tells is of a complete and polar opposite, not of an awful and wicked tyrant, but of a loving, covenant-keeping God. Indeed, instead of those four uh, uh, points that I mentioned, they are the opposite. Uh, This covenant-keeping Lord, this good God, he, he will defeat Pharaoh. Not The Pharaoh may not recognize him and fights against him and has set himself up as a god in rebellion against him, just like Satan. But he's no match for the living God. There will be a complete and total defeat for him soon enough and a famous victory for the living God as there will be in the case of Satan. He will defeat Pharaoh. And secondly, he will redeem his people. Pharaoh loves to keep his people in bondage. He is a slave master, but... The living God loves to redeem his people. He'll pay any price to do that. He will redeem his people, and he will take away the burdens from them. He's not going to allow them to continue to be slaves, but will will redeem them to himself. And thirdly, this is because, of course, he's a loving God. He's not a hateful tyrant. Hateful tyrants do hateful and tyrannical things. But loving and covenant-keeping gods, well, there's only one of them, and He does precisely what's in accordance with his own holy, good, and loving nature. He's going to be good to his people. He's not just going to save them from this this horrible furnace of, it's, it's described that way in the word of God, this furnace of fire. It's a picture of hell, really. He's not only going to pull them out of that, he's going to bring them into a a wonderful place, into this land flowing with milk and honey, which he promised to, to Abraham and to all of his children. And beyond that, he was going to vindicate his servants in all this. I mentioned that Pharaoh slanders even that which was irrefutably true. God is going to vindicate his words and his servants. And that, that point, by the way, has significance even beyond Pharaoh's slander of the word that was given to him, the, the, the motivations behind it. It's not because they were lazy and trying to get out of work, No. But it's, it's, unfortunately, in this case, recall the final section of chapter 5. I'll just read that, Exodus five nineteen, And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after, after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your, their daily quota. And as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they came to them, let the Lord look on you and judge, because you... You have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. This wasn't coming from their enemy. This was coming from the very people that Moses and Aaron were sent to help to redeem. And it seems at that moment, again, if you freeze frame, like they've done far more harm than good. And they even their good intentions and their good word is being slandered even by the officers of the people of God. And these words, these are the words that are hanging in the air and hanging very heavily in the hearts of Moses and Aaron as we come to chapter 6 and to God's declaration of himself and his good intentions. He would surely vindicate his servants. But all this, again, is under the heading of the Lord's covenant 
goodness, the Lord's covenant goodness. That's what the whole work of redemption is about. It was mentioned in the conference these last days. It is certainly what the word of God and particularly this passage is about, his covenant goodness. Again, these four points. He will defeat Pharaoh. He will redeem his people. He is a loving God. He will vindicate his servants. So first of all, he will defeat Pharaoh. In verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Now notice the way that's, that's phrased. You will, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. He's speaking these words in... Now let me just say, again, you have to think of the long-suffering of God as, as these... Uh, as Moses and Aaron come and relate the the words uh, of the officers, these wrong words, and really haven't done anything to say, Lord, I don't want to trouble you, but, you you know, the officers of people were kind of rough with us, and I'll just tell you what they said. No, they, they, they add their own words to these things, and almost an accusation against the Lord. You told us to do this, and nothing's happened. You, you sent us to be of help to them, and we've made it worse. Lord, what, what is up with that? And God would be very, very just and, and righteous simply to, uh, to respond in anger to them. Um, but he's long-suffering, he's patient, and he just kind of takes that on the chin, and he goes immediately to say, you know, now you're going to see what I do to Pharaoh. Um, he, because Pharaoh is not in control. That's the illusion that he has. The illusion under which the people of God are operating, unfortunately, is that Pharaoh is in control. Pharaoh has just said, I'm not even going to give you straw. and I'm going to go make you to do bricks. And the people obediently walk out as if, well, that, that was the end of that meeting. And that's the end of the story. Surely we're in deep trouble now. And as that's relayed into Moses and Aaron, they said, yep, we're in deep trouble. But that's not the end. Actually, Pharaoh's not in control. The Lord is going to overpower him, and you're going to see it. You're going to see what I do to Pharaoh. Because so strong is going to be the hand of the Lord upon him that their departure is not going to be some passive thing in which he's going to, all right, fine, fine, I'll look the other way while you leave. Rather, it is going to be Pharaoh doing what he can with his strong hand, for with a strong hand he will let them go. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. Now, that, that, that first phrase, grammatically and really in terms of, of biology and physics, seems impossible, right? For with a strong hand, he will let them go. How does that work? You're mixing an active and a passive in, in some kind of impossible way, a strong hand letting them go. That only happens when there's such a complete victory that the defeated enemy is now doing everything in his power to accomplish the thing that the one who's overcome him wants to do. Right? And that is exactly what we're going to see. Exodus 12.30. This is, this is more towards the end of the story. It's not Pharaoh is in control here. It's, it's the opposite. Pharaoh rose in the night, not in the time of his convenience, in the middle of the night, He and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night, because he could not wait for day. This is his strong hand. And he said, rise, right now, 
Go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Now I'm commanding you to do that which you've requested. And also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. And Pharaoh, their leader, and all the people together acting as one, doing whatever is in their power to do with a strong hand to do exactly what they requested in the first place with all haste in the middle of the night. It's going to be true. God's victory is going to be so great that Pharaoh himself and all the people are going to be urging them out of the land. So ironically... They are being urged out. Even Pharaoh's arm is being exerted to get them out of the land. But in all this, what is really being demonstrated is not the arm of Pharaoh, but the arm of the Lord. So in verse 6, I will redeem you with a what? An outstretched arm and with great judgments because that's going to be on display. Right? God, look, he rules this universe. There's not a single thing that happens apart from his sovereign determination. But sometimes he is more demonstrative about it. Sometimes he does it more directly in order that his glorious attributes might be put on display. That is the reason for the great work of redemption itself. And these people, they had heard that the Lord God was powerful, secondhand, by report, But now they're going to see that power demonstrated in ways that had never before been seen. He was going to bear his arm, put it on display, so that his people would see the true meaning of his power. God was going to defeat Pharaoh. But of course we know that this points beyond just this one human king. He is a picture of Satan and and Moses is a picture of Christ. And so therefore what we're seeing is also Christ's defeat of Satan. Luke 11. That wasn't too long ago, was it? Luke 11:21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, funny how Pharaoh lives in a palace, strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace, meaning they're not being threatened, no one's going to be able to take them away, and Pharaoh is saying, you can't go, ha ha, I've, I've got you. There is, goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his arm in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That's, That's what's going to happen because Jesus Christ is the stronger man. And all this picture here of Moses walking right into the the palace and saying, "Let, let my people go. And he says, no. And then there's a battle. And 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 guess what? Guess who wins? Moses does, not because of his own strength, but because God so empowers him that he, that Pharaoh has no choice. His arm is broken and he takes the stuff that he wants, which is the people of God, and off they go. They leave and there's nothing that the strong man, Pharaoh in his palace, can do about it. All the, good, the things that he entrusted, remember a bit by, he entrusted in the magicians, And at first, the magicians think that they can counter what Moses is doing. He can do the same kind of signs. But even in the very things which he thought he could most entrust, these were the things that were being destroyed before his eyes. And so it was with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a stronger man. And let me say this, that Satan has not willingly released a single one of his captives. Never 
Never voluntarily do, do any of us leave his palace. Each and every one of them has been wrested from his hands with violence from the one who has overpowered him, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's what happens to Satan. His hand is not strong enough. He, He wants to keep us in his grasp, but he just can't do it. Unlike the Lord Jesus, because his hand is strong enough to keep us. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Now, did you catch that there's something missing in that logic? Right? I understand that God, the father of glory, is that strong But Jesus has now inserted himself into the picture. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And how about, how does that relate to Jesus Christ then? Well, he he supplies the thing that was missing in verse 30. I and my father am one. You see? So as the unlimited omnipotent power of the living God it is perfectly all in the hands of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Moses marching into that palace. That's good enough. No one can stand even against Moses as God upholds him. But it is, it is the incarnate God himself who marches in the stronghold of Satan and wrests us from his hand. But it doesn't work in reverse. Be clear about that. It's not a game of tit and tat and, you know, I'll take some and then I'll take some back. No, it's not like that. When, when we're in his hands, no one can possibly take us away. Well, there is going to be this victory. He is certainly going to defeat Pharaoh. And he is then going to redeem his people. There are deeply interrelated things, but maybe distinct ones that we should think about. There's a victory, but also there's a redemption As in verse 5, I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with, with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Just starting at a, the perhaps a lesser point, that I have heard their groaning. Isn't that completely opposite then to this wicked tyrant Pharaoh who they've come and they have made their complaint in a very polite and reasonable way and, and, and he doesn't listen. He refuses to listen to their cries, refuses to listen to their groaning, to their reasonable request. He stops his ear to it all and throws him out of his court. No, it's very different with our Redeemer very different with our God. He is the one who hears the groaning of his people. That's the very beginning of the Exodus story. It's the beginning of the Exodus story for Moses himself as he ventures outside of his palace and goes out and he hears the groaning of his people. He sees their suffering with his own eyes and that prompts him. That is what leads to the events of him then becoming their redeemer. Well, God himself is not stopping his ears, but rather he is hearing us. That's the way redemption begins, right? The goel, 
the redeemer, even within a family, somebody's appointed to be the goel of the weaker people in that family. And it begins by recognition of there is a problem. He hears a cry and he goes forth to redeem those who are in trouble. And he, but this is not the end. This redemption, you see, is based on the covenant because that's the larger picture of what we're talking about. What kind of God is this? In his works, in his words, what kind of God is it? He's a good God, and particularly he is a covenant-keeping God. He says, I have remembered my covenant. That's the reason why. It's not that their groaning is enough. You know, sometimes you, you see the social do-gooding stuff even represented here on our wall. And you say, where is, the, where is the final rationale for it? Because in an atheist world, there is no rationale for that at all. If we've just evolved from protoplasma, there is no reason for it. You, you, the, the existentialist problem, you know what it is? It's wicked. I hate, in some sense, repeating. But you know, there, there, there are three. The, the existentialist problem is this. Old lady crossing the street. Should you, should you help the old lady? Should you ignore the old lady? Or should you push her under the bus? And you know what? In an atheist world, all of those things are of moral equivalence. No difference at all. There's no reason to do any of those kind of things. What is the reason why our Redeemer does what he has done? What is the reason why he has heard the cry of, yes, a sinful people? The people of of Egypt are sinners, and the people who live in Goshen, they're sinners too. Why is he listening to the cries of those sinners who live in Goshen? Why? Because I remember my covenant. That's all. He made a covenant with their father, you see. He made some promise to him. He cut a covenant of blood with him. He didn't have to do that, but he did. This universe is a good God. In his sovereignty, he makes covenant with people. And he does not forget that covenant. He didn't have to do it, but having done it, he will never, ever, ever forget that covenant. And he will move heaven and earth to accomplish the redemption of his people. Why? Because he remembers the promises made to Abraham. There is, a, there is a reason for it. It's not in our goodness. It's not even in some compulsion in God, but of his, his free and voluntary mercy and grace, his covenant grace. In verse 6, Therefore, because of these things, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. Pharaoh just loved to put people in bondage. He loved to put burdens upon these poor people. It reminds me as well as the Pharisees in the New Testament, how they loved to put burdens on the people, burdens which the Lord said they would not even lift so much, use a finger to lift themselves, but they loved putting burdens on people. Do you know what, our God, he's so good that he loves to lift burdens. He comes to a people who are burdened, and he delights to take away them. He's going to give rest to these people. He's not a, a tyrant who is enslaving people. And, and the, the thing that he loves is to see people uh, constantly bearing burdens on his behalf. He delights to give his people rest. That's, by the way, what's happening on this day, on the Sabbath day. It is a day of rest. It is, yes, it gives rest in itself, but it points far beyond itself of the rest that we have in Christ. Again, all this is Christ. This redemption involving the shedding of blood 
It wouldn't be just the shedding of lambs and goats as we're going to see in the Passover. It's not even going to be the shedding of blood of the firstborn of his enemies as we're going to see of the, the final plague. But it's going to be the shedding of God's, the blood of God's own firstborn, the Lord Jesus Christ, this redemption. And he's going to, and again, you're going to say, why? Why? What would possibly prompt God to give us his son? Because he remembered his covenant, covenant of grace, indeed the covenant of redemption made in eternity, that Christ would have this people, and he will have them. He is a redeemer God. Thirdly, he is a loving God. Let's just read through this section here. What kind of God is being described here as we read in, let's say, from verses 2 to verses 8? And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's he's adding to his name. Then you will know that I am and fill in the blank. And, and this is a new part of the, the attributes of God, of his character that's being revealed. Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give, to you, give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. That's the explanation. I am the Lord. Finally, it's not just some particular isolated attribute of, of God that is being pointed out. It is that he is the Lord. And this is the kind of God that he is. He is a loving God. Right? That's the kind of God who does these things. He's a good God. He's a loving God. It's just what it says in 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. God is love. That's, that's why. You say, what explanation do we have then of the love that he has? Well, let me say once again, there is no explanation that goes beyond his love. That's as far as it goes. He, he just loves us, for which reason he does everything for us. That's the gospel. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. God so loved the world. And he is a loving God who is doing this work. He's not a hateful tyrant. He's a loving God. And he will move heaven and earth to save his people because of that. Fourthly and finally, very briefly, by the way, he will vindicate his servants. Now, that's not an explicit statement of any part of of this. That is an implicit part. 
Okay, what I'm saying is, remember what the, the Westminster Confession says, it's not just the explicit statements that we take seriously, it's also the implications, the good and necessary consequences of Scripture, which are also the truth of God and to be, uh, to be believed and to be obeyed. Okay, and the implication of all this, well, that he's going to vindicate his servants. Why did he say it? Why did the Lord need to say any of it? I don't know if there's any part of this that's really new. I think actually that God has already said every part of this passage that we've read. He said it before to Moses. Does he really need to say it again? The answer is no. But what he's saying in all that, in his reiteration of these things, in repeating all those promises, his good intentions, he is pointing out that, look, I know you're saying to me, Lord, you sent me to do this work, and, and all this is being spoken against. I'm being slandered, and, and people are saying, the Lord judge between you and me. Well, the Lord says, I'm going to render judgment. Don't worry about it. I'm going to judge between you and them and between you and Pharaoh, and I'm going to judge in your favor because I'm going to vindicate that word that you delivered. I'm going to vindicate your motivations and your work and all the rest of it as you come as my faithful servant, yes, my reluctant and my sinful servant, but nonetheless, on my errand, speaking my word, in accordance with my will and ordination, I will surely vindicate you, my servant. The Lord judge between you and me. Yes, he says, I will judge, and I will judge in your favor. That's the implicit message of this passage, that he will vindicate his servants. And all this so categorically, so polar opposite to the wicked tyrant Pharaoh. He will defeat him. He will redeem his people because he's a loving God. And he will surely vindicate his servants. The applications, very straightforward. First of all, get rid of your burden. You know, reference Pilgrim's Progress. Sometimes I, in fact, on the Lord's Day, sometimes go home and, and read from a children's version of, of Pilgrim's Progress. And, and one of the little ones will very often ask, what is that thing on his back? And the answer is, it's a burden. And he's, you see him, he's burdened. He's bent over with his burden. He's not happy. And the question is, how can he get rid of the burden? Well, that's, that's his question as well. He wished he knew the answer to it, but he's just following the instructions that are given to him, and the instructions bring him to the cross, where the burden rolls away, sight of the cross, and rolls away out of sight in the tomb, never to be seen again. Well, Matthew eleven twenty eight says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is the God that we serve. He's the one who wants to take away our burden. He specifically cries out. He makes the invitation to those who labor laboring for their salvation, those who are heavy laden with many requirements that others, and particularly Satan, has laid upon you. Let me say, when people think of those who serve the devil, sometimes listening to the propaganda that Satan 
proclaims. Maybe we think of, of light-hearted people partying or something like that. That's not the picture that's, that I have, and it's not the picture that's true. The real picture is people who are bent over with burdens. You, you look at the, any number of the crises of our time, the crises of, of, uh, of, of psychiatric illness, the, the crisis of, of uh, painkillers and all the rest of it. You know, some of the celebrities that have recently died, it's just part of the larger picture of all the people who just have to medicate themselves to, to live because of the burdens that they have, the burdens that they deal with, the burdens of guilt, the burdens of trying to live up to something that's in, impossible, the burdens of, of sin and all the rest of these things because a wicked taskmaster delights to put burdens upon them. They're already burdened. He finds some new burden and puts it on and then he laughs. Go make Go get straw and still make brick. It's impossible to serve him. And yet he adds more burdens all the time. Jesus Christ says to you, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's justification, isn't it? You don't have to work for your salvation. Christ has done that work. All you have to do is receive it in faith and you will be saved. That is, the, that is the work of justification. It's not anything. It is a gift of grace, nothing that you've done. And also in terms of our sanctification. Okay, there is work. True. You know, God uses our, our efforts towards greater holiness. He does. But listen to the way it's characterized. Take my yoke upon you, right? So he's, first of all, giving them rest and justification. But then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a burden. There is a yoke. It's to the, the law of God, but it's, it's easy and it's light, right? There's nothing. You, you're no longer doing it to, to deliver yourself. That's impossible, You're doing it out of gladness and thanksgiving, a desire to glorify God and a desire to live free because this is is what the yoke is. it's It's a direction instrument that's bringing you to the free land. And it's a way to keep you in the straight and narrow of freedom rather than returning again to bondage and to Israel. That's not a terrible burden. And let me say this. If there are great and heavy burdens on you as a Christian, I ask you, who put them there? If you're feeling some great weight of a burden which you, you think this is, is dreadful and it's looming huge in your horizon and you feel like there's, there's no escape and you're not really able to live up to this burden, you don't know how it's going to be accomplished, who put it there? My Lord didn't put it there because he's just told you very straightly and very plainly he doesn't do that. Who does love to put these onerous burdens on you? Probably Satan. And he loves to try to do that even for God's people. Don't let him. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not. And I say again, by the way, this, this includes the Sabbath day. The irony is that Satan wants to paint this day as a burden. And maybe, indeed, that's, that's what he did with the Pharisees. He worked his magic with them and made it, somehow made a day of rest and of glorious rejoicing and all the rest of it to be some great burden on God's people. Well, don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to Pharisees. Listen to our God who says this is a gift and a delight and that all imp- impetus to, to use it for other purposes, the sort of things that happen in the course of the week, uh, these things are not freedom. Uh, the, these things are, are actually... Um, 
designed to take away from the beautiful freedom that we have on this day. So that was application number one, get rid of your burdens. Secondly, let me just assure you that he hears our prayers. This is something that is, is continually through Exodus. And if Exodus, if the inerrant word of God, inspired word of God emphasizes it, we should emphasize it as well. He keeps on saying, I have heard you. I have heard you. And let me say he hears you. He hears our prayers. Isaiah sixty-five twenty-four: it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Now, that's not everyone. Look, he says he doesn't hear the prayer of the wicked. One prayer he hears, of course, is the prayer of repentance and faith. He doesn't hear the prayer of the, the, the wicked, but he does hear ours. In fact, he hears it that while he, he, we are still speaking, he's already in action. Right? And, and that's, we saw that illustrated with regard to Moses. Moses had no right to want to press the, to, to hand over the, the job that had been given to him to someone else. But it seemed to me like Aaron was already on his way. All right? By the end of the prayer, he says, well, actually, Aaron's on his way, and, and he'll help you. All right? That's just how good and how prayer-hearing our God, that it's sometimes our prayers, maybe they wouldn't actually withstand the pure light of, of infinite reason and of infinite logic and of purity of motivations. Okay, maybe none of our prayers would actually stand up in that kind of light. They're always going to be tinged with a little bit of sin somewhere. But our God is so good. He's so willing to hear our prayers that he interprets them in and, and wonderful light. Why? Because Christ, our Redeemer, is doing his work of, of interceding on our behalf. The Holy Spirit, even as we don't know rightly how to pray because we lack wisdom, he intercedes for us in words that cannot be uttered. And in this, we can be certain that our good and loving God, he hears our prayers. So we should use that. We should all the more be encouraged. If, we're, if we ever come to a place where we are not encouraged to prayer, when we're discouraged about prayer, again, the question is, who did that? Who did that? It's Satan. Our God loves to hear our prayers. Thirdly, we should pray for victory. As we have a great champion, we have this stronger man, and we earnestly want to see him at work. That is what the conference was about. That is what the prayer meeting was about. We want to see reformation and revival in our time because we want to see the work of our God in our time. We've heard, Lord, that you're powerful. Bear your holy arm and let, let us see you at work. That is our desire. There, there's, I mean, I'm sure that we have some subservient Uh, desires in that for ourselves and for our families. We want to see healthier, stronger churches and all the rest of it. We don't want to see the country go down the tubes. But that is all down here. What What is up here is we want to see our glorious God. Even in eternity, we're speaking in heaven, we will be examining and looking at the works of the history of redemption because that is how God is revealing his character. That is how he's revealing his wonderful attributes of his power and righteousness and mercy and grace and all the rest of these things. We want to see that now. And he, we know that he invites us to pray for such things. Now, None of these things, Reformation, Revival, they don't just happen on their own. 
Right? If there's something amiss in the doctrine that's being taught, if there's something amiss in the way the sacraments are being administered in church discipline or lack thereof in, in worship, very rarely is it entirely out of ignorance. Okay? Sometimes, sometimes it's purely that they just don't know it all, and that's why. But nine times out of ten, the reason is because people want it that way. It's, it's not that they don't know what God's word teaches. They don't like it. And so they change it. Okay? And what's going to change that? What's going to prompt people to want to reform everything, to conform to the word of God? That's God himself working through the Holy Spirit. Only he can give such a desire. At whose initiative was the exodus? It was God's initiative. But, but... What happened first was that God's people cried out. Okay? It's true. We have a report of God's people crying out from the earliest part. There's a report of what's going on, and the very next thing we hear is God's people are crying out. That is before the work of redemption begins. Now, God, that is all part of God's plan. It's all in his sovereign determination, but he uses that crying out for it to work this great victory. And I don't mean that we shouldn't do whatever is in our hands to do. We absolutely certain. But all that for what we wish for to happen, of this great work of reformation and revival, that's a work of God, and we must cry out to him for it. We pray for victory. And fourthly, and finally, we wait for vindication. I, I mentioned last time it is more than likely that there are those among us who have been and are being slandered. And it is, is not because that we have spoken that which was untrue or done that which is wicked, but actually have only conveyed the, the word of the living God. And we're on his errand, perhaps. The way of truth is being slandered. And God himself is being blasphemed in this country, isn't he? It's very true. It's very true. But, you know, our situation is therefore no different than the, the martyrs in heaven. The martyrs, in, verse, in, in Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which he held. What does that entail, by the way? If they've been slain for the word of God, it means that they in their time, in whatever situation they were, were called to stand up and to speak the truth in love. And they didn't faint. They didn't fail. They didn't, they didn't turn away from doing it. They were faithful. And when they were told... Do it. Give the give sacrifice to to the political leader. Say that Caesar is Lord. And I said, No, I'm not going to do it. Christ is Lord. I don't care what you say. Christ is Lord. They were they were being called upon to say that which was not true. They were being called upon to give assent to that which is a lie, and they would not do it. And what happened to them? They were killed. Because it has been the case. That nations and political governments in this wicked world have taken the word of God that seriously. Why? Because the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And here's what they say. These martyrs who have been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood? On those who dwell on the earth. And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, were completed. 
And then we have the rest of the story, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which his word, his works, and his servants, they will all be vindicated perfectly. For the time being, although perhaps there will be intermediate sort of victories here and there, sometimes we will be vindicated even now. But for the real thing and its completeness, we have to wait. Martyrs in heaven are waiting. We're going to wait until we're finally vindicated. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are truly a good God. You are a good, loving, covenant-keeping God. And all the lies of Satan fall to the ground in the face of your truth, in the face of your word and your works. Heavenly Father, how we pray, Lord, that we would worship you, and that all who are under the bondage of Satan would turn away and realize that this tyrant seeks to destroy them, and his wages are such that cannot be borne and will result in their death. Lord, we are thankful that you extend your hand to those who are burdened and are heavy laden, and you declare that you will give rest. It's not because of any good thing that we've done. We know that this redemption comes at infinite cost. In order that we might be free, in order that we might have rest, Christ had to be bound to that cross, and his blood had to be shed. But Heavenly Father, you do this because you are a good and loving covenant-keeping God. And you have made a promise. You have cut a covenant. And Lord, nothing will prevent these things from seeing their accomplishment. So Lord, how we pray that we would entrust ourselves to you and indeed all the more to cry out to you in prayer. You will hear our cries. We know it. And we do pray for victory. We pray, Lord, that even in this place, Satan has taken so many of our fathers and mothers sons and daughters, brothers and sisters captive, our neighbors, our co-workers, all around us, there are captives, burdened, enslaved in lies, headed for an eternity of hell. Lord, we pray that we would yet see a great victory. This work of the reformation of your church, that the, the word that it declares and the way that it lives would be clean and pure. And Lord, a work of revival of your spirit giving great power to the means of grace and bringing people, yes, seeking the way of salvation in a way that has not been seen in some time. We pray, Lord, that you would grant such victories. And we know, Lord, that surely the final victory is yours, and we look for it. Lord, we may wish, Lord, for vindication now, even as no doubt Moses would have wished to have been vindicated that moment. But you give us your promise that all will, in fact, be dealt with And your ways, your words, your servants will at last be vindicated. How we pray, Lord, that we would be patient a little while longer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.